0: Well, 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 we are back. We've only got a few more episodes left for the creation series. Um, Man, there's so much that we could have hopped into. So, so much that we could have hopped into. But I wanted this to be a more general overview, uh, discovering more of the context that is behind Genesis 1. And in the future, at some point, I want to go through the narratives of adam and eve and what's going on there there's so many so many cool things there dude the bible is so awesome seriously it's really hard to choose topics sometimes or to get things rolling because the bible is just so cool and you can spend a lifetime on any page of the bible but we're gonna be wrapping up here with a few more episodes uh, because i want to start hopping into um Another portion of study. I'm trying to decide whether or not I want to do Ephesians or hop into the maybe like the first 20 Psalms or so. The Psalms are so cool, and I've recently gone back through them um with with an eye for shared patterns and themes. And oh my goodness, I'm telling you, God's word is so awesome. It's so cool. So I think I, I kind of want to do psalms. Uh if, if y'all have any suggestions of any things that You may want to hear discussed on the podcast, any books of the Bible, specific passages, specific problems or topics, you know, feel free to let me know. Message me on Instagram or Facebook or email me. All those links are down below. But if not, I'm probably going to go through Psalms Um, because, man, they they really just have my heart right now. But anyway, these are the last few episodes. And I stated uh, last episode, I believe, that we'd be going through covering All of the seven days of creation individually. But silly me did not realize that throughout this whole creation series, we've been basically covering a big portion of the seven days of creation. I mean, we've talked about the Rakia, the waters, the chaos waters, the dragons, you know, the sea monsters, the land, how it emerges, um, the light. The lights, the sun, and the moon—all of these things—and really, what we haven't discussed yet is days six and seven. And for many, uh, day six in particular is the culmination of God's creative work. It's kind of like the—it's the crescendo, if you will. Because what does God save for day six? Well, He saves the best for last. He saves. Mankind as the last thing he chooses to create. And because of this, day six has garnered a lot of attention and questions regarding our purpose and status in creation. Because we're told that we are made in God's image. But what does that really mean? And more importantly, what does that mean that we should do? What should we do with this imaging role or power that we have been granted by God? And, you know, we could go down the path of parsing out all the various arguments and views regarding what it means to be made in the image of God. And trust me, there are many. There are Many different views on what about a human constitutes us being made in God's image. Is it our consciousness? Is it our ability to reason? Is it are is it our emotional capability? Is it our capability to love? Is it our um just our human features—the way that we look, the way that we act, the way that we behave? Is it a culmination of all that? Is it none of those things? And this debate has been ongoing. Um for all time, right? And each side of those arguments seem to have some truth. But to me, it seems to be more helpful not to try and decide here today in this little 30, 40-minute episode which one of these views is right because honestly, I don't know. But it seems like it will be more helpful for us to look at how this status of being made in God's image, how this is played out and how it is, it is expected to be played out throughout the biblical story. And I think if we can understand this and if we can grasp this, this will give us a, a more complete understanding of not necessarily what it means to be made in God's image on a qualitative, uh, tangible Stands, but what are we supposed to do with the fact that we are made in god's image and this is really important for us to grasp because all of humanity has embarked for thousands and thousands of years on the search for purpose and meaning alongside discovering why are we different than all the rest of life that is on earth why is that? And this is what humans have been searching for for so long. And this is a question that science can never answer. And this is one of the biggest flaws with um, an atheistic belief is that in an in a atheistic worldview, human beings have no real meaning or purpose. We're just sacks of flesh driven by a purely hands-off evolutionary basis. Where as long as we survive and propagate the species, that's the only thing that our fleshly bodies are concerned with. So there is no real purpose because when the lights go out, the lights go out. So nothing that you do, nothing that you say, nothing that you believe, no matter how you treat people on an atheistic worldview, none of it really matters in the grand scheme of the cosmos. Because as far as history is concerned, your life is just a little tiny speck of dust in the ocean full of humans and history and years and events. And so on an atheistic worldview, your life has no meaning. It has no purpose. And even if you try and pull meaning from over here or grab purpose from over there, ultimately it really means nothing in the grand scheme of things. So that this is why the question of human purpose and human meaning and the meaning of life and all of this, this is why this question is best answered through the Christian worldview. Through the worldview that believes that there is a divine creator that set forth everything in motion with a purpose, with a function. And we believe that because Genesis 1 tells us that we are made in the image of God, We have more of a purpose on this earth than to simply propagate the species and survive. And then when it's all said and done, die when the lights go out. There's something about human beings that makes us wholly unique to all of life on earth. And simply put, it's because we're made in the image of the creator of that life. So the question I want to ask today and that we're going to think through and look through is, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? So, let's dive in and see what the Bible has to tell us. We're going to go through day six. Starts in Genesis 1, verse 26. We're going to read through verse 28. Says, then God said, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. So some important observations that we can make. Uh and this is something that's been a topic of discussion uh at least in my study more recently is in verse 26 God says, "Let us make man in our image after our likeness." And you'll notice right off the bat that God is speaking about a plurality of something here, because He says, "Let us make man in our image after our likeness. God is in conversation with someone or something else here now I'm not going to dive into um what this may or may not be, but for those who maybe had noticed this and haven't heard the discussions around the plurality of language here uh there's really two kind of main topic or two main ways of approaching this two different camps if you will. Uh the first one and the more popular one would be that the us in the hour here is the trinity. That the father, son and the spirit are all in conversation together uh speaking about making man in their image, whatever that may mean and we're going to look at that here. Um another View that has kind of been more popular recently. uh, I heard it from scholar Dr. Michael Heiser. Is that this is the view that God is speaking to the divine council? If you haven't heard of the divine council, maybe I'll do an episode on it, or you can go to Dr. Michael Heiser's website and he has a ton of material. Um, But there are multiple Old Testament passages that speak of God having a divine council that he delegates authority to, similar to how God delegates authority to mankind here to rule over the earth and have dominion in that sense. Um, And what's really interesting about that view is that God may be saying, hey, let us make man in our image, whatever that may be, whether it's a quality or a duty. um, And that could be another uh, way that the plurality is expressed. I don't really know what view I hold. I think both have merit and credit, and I think both are Perfectly honoring of the Bible and and whatnot, but for those of you who looked at it and said, "It looks like God is talking to somebody here. Uh, what's going on?" Uh, that's kind of the views there. Another important observation to make, and this is probably where we really should start, is the word "man." Let us make man in our image. Uh, we need to be clear because this has been used, unfortunately, in the past to. Uh, make the case that women are inferior to men in some way, shape, or form. But we need to point out that man here is actually the Hebrew word adam, which in Hebrew just means human or mankind. So this would be better understood and translated to read, let us make mankind or let us make human in our image after our likeness. The next thing that we can point out, and this gets a little bit more technical on the Hebrew side of things, but some Hebrew scholars have pointed this out. Um, I'm going to be reading from Hebrew scholar Tim Mackey. He says this, uh, the phrase, and let them rule over, right? So it says, God made man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over, or in other translations, let them rule over. That phrase in Hebrew grammar and syntax When you have a verb of command or invitation called a jussive, followed by a clause that also has a jussive, which would be the phrase, and let them rule, it is meant to be understood as a purpose statement. Now, catch what he says here. He translates how this should be better understood with the Hebrew grammar that it would say, Let us make man in our image, in order that they may rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds, so on and so forth. So right off the bat, mankind is being created with a purpose and a function in mind. And that purpose and function is to rule over the creation that God has established on earth. And if you remember um, a few episodes ago, we talked about how for an ancient biblical author and ancient people in general around this culture— Things came into existence, not if they were materially present. They don't think about existence the same way that we do. Something came into existence if it was named and if it was given a function and a purpose. And so here, mankind is not only being named, but they're also being given a function to rule over the good creation that God has made and we can also notice that when it comes to being made in God's image and ruling the ruling is meant to not be over other people but over the created things that God made in the previous 5 days now this is really really important for for a few reasons i'll point out the more obvious one or maybe it's not obvious but it'll be obvious now is that If we are all made in God's image, this is why things like murder, stealing, lying, abuse, hurting other humans, this is why this is so wrong, because we are hurting something that is created in the image of God, something that was created with a function to co-rule on this earth with the rest of mankind. God does not give us the authority here in Genesis 1 to rule over other human beings. But he gives us the authority to rule over the things that were created before. And he names them. The birds, the fish in the sea, the creeping things, the animals. These are the things that we were given the authority to rule over. And noting this, makes the fall of adam and eve so devastating so devastating because we're told in genesis 3 that that because of the actions of adam and eve that a part of their downfall will be that eve will desire her husband now this meaning of desiring her husband is meant to be taken in a negative sense It's not saying that Eve um, is just going to have so much love and lust for Adam and she just can't wait to get with him. That's not what it's saying because when we look at the fall of Cain in the Cain and Abel story, God says the same exact phrase of sin crouching at the door and sin having its desire for Cain. It's the same phrase word for word as Eve having her desire for Adam. So this is meant to be taken in a negative sense that because this original perfect union between man and woman is broken by sin is that evil now have a distorted desire to have some some sort of power or authority or dominion or rule over Adam which completely subverts the calling of mankind in Genesis 1 and as a result of that We're told that Adam is going to rule over Eve, which is a complete misuse of the ruling authority that God gave mankind here on day six. It's really important that we understand this, especially throughout the entire biblical story. What do we see? We see human beings that in the original creation were created on par. One was not meant to rule over the other. They were just meant to rule over the rest of creation. And time and time again, God's humans that were made in his image are abusing and mistreating each other. They are going above and beyond the authority that they were given to rule in creation. This plays out time and time again in the biblical story. Well, what are some other observations that we can make? Uh, How about this? Let's focus on verse 27. Uh, Verse 27, if you're looking in your Bible or online, your translation may have it kind of separated out from the verses before and after it. And it's good that they do this because this is actually a three-line poem that gives us a description of what the divine image constitutes. So let's read it. It says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay. So this poem is set up in a way that it invokes it to be read through the lens of parallelism. So you have God creating man in his image, the first line. And then you have line two, which is the inverse of line one. But it now changes the unspecific man or Adam, the human, to a specific him. And then in line three, it expands the meaning of him and Adam to be more specific to include the unity of male and female. So you have on line one, God creating man, Adam, just human in general, in line two, it gives us a deeper description of what that man constitutes, which is God created him. Then In line three, it gives us an even deeper description of what the him and Adam is referring to, which is male and female. So the poetic structure makes it clear that God's image is portrayed in humanity through the duality of male and female. So somehow when we're reading this poem somehow we're supposed to deduce that god's image is displayed through the unity of humanity as a whole but humanity here is one but it's more than one at the same time and somehow this reflects the image of god because it's humanity as a whole but it's also male and female together it's not just male it's not just female uh, excluding either or it's It's both, both male and female here somehow constitute and reflect the image of God. So going back to Adam and Eve once again, uh, once again, this makes the fall such a devastating event because God's image, as we're told here in verse 27, is displayed in the unity of male and female as a whole. But when the two sides war against each other, they no longer properly display God's image. Now, let me be clear. This is not a claim that actions alone constitute our imaging of God. But I'm convinced that it certainly plays a role. I'm convinced of it. Because, okay, here, for instance, we're told that we are made in God's image in his likeness. And the Hebrew words for image and likeness are selim and demut. And these are most commonly used to refer to a physical statue of stone or wood. And often these words are translated as idol or statue in other Old Testament passages. I'll read a few here. Numbers chapter 33, verse 51 through 52. says, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you cross over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you, and destroy all their figured stones, and destroy all the molten images or statues, and demolish all their high places. Second Kings eleven verse eighteen, all the people of the land went to the house of Baal and tore it down, his altars and his images, they broke in pieces thoroughly. So quite literally. Because the words that are being used, uh, we're meant to be God's statue. God's, God's little idol, in a sense. A direct image of God himself. That's what we're representing. And when we look at it from that point of view, it makes things like the second commandment make more sense. You know, the second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. I mean, it's using the same language from Genesis 1. We are made in God's image, in his likeness. And here the second commandment you shall not make a carved image or any likeness. And why on earth would we want to make anything as an idol to try and depict or represent God's likeness? When we're already made in his image, we're already made as his idol, his likeness. If we understand what we are, essentially what we are created to be, it makes things like making idols to depict God, to represent God so foolish of us because we're literally trying to create something that we are already created to be. Because anything else that we would make would be lesser than the images and the likeness and the idols that God has already made for himself, for his purpose, which is his own beloved human beings, his own beloved children. This is also why the golden calf incident is so egregious and it's so foolish because Israel threw away their purpose as God's idol, as God's image in order to make a lesser image as a calf <laughs> it it makes you it makes you laugh when you understand how foolish it, it that would be like that would be like my daughters going and trying to create a little robot daughter and try and present it to me and say look dad we made you a robot daughter we hope that you love it we hope that it's all that you want it to be and I would look at them and I would say do you not know who you are? You're my daughters, like literally, you are my daughters. You represent a part of me. You are my my imagers in a sense, and how silly would it be for my daughters to try and make a lesser inadequate thing that I don't love and try and say that it's my daughter when they are overlooking the fact that They are my daughters. That's the same thing that God is probably feeling when He sees His imagers, His statues, His likeness trying to make things that are lesser than themselves. And this is why the portrait of Jesus, as far as I can tell, is so profound. It's also why Jesus' life on earth was the best example of god that the the bible has been able to depict up until this point of the story i mean think about it what okay so what is the purpose of an idol or an image of something well it's to act as a physical representation of the thing that it represents and so for instance when we look at an image of a mountain we look at a picture of a mountain We understand on one sense that it is not the mountain itself, but it's the next best thing that we can access that shows us what the mountains are, that embodies in the best capability that we can muster what the mountains are. But this image of the mountains would fail its purpose of representing its subject If it was covered in red ink, or if it was torn apart, or if it was trampled on, it would give a distorted view, an incomplete view, of what was otherwise the perfect subject that it's representing. And human beings are no different in how they were created to represent God as his image. If you read the Bible long enough, you realize that there are many commands And moral principles that are laid out for God's people. And why is that? Is it just because God wants us to do some arbitrary things. And he just wants to control us like a little puppeteer? Or could it be that as God's imagers. As God's idols. God wants his people to fully represent him in the holiest manner possible. We know that God's chosen people, Israel that they were purposed with the responsibility of being a light to the rest of the world. We see this in Isaiah 42, verse 6. But we can ask ourselves this, how can Israel, or if we extend it to just mankind in general, how can we be the light-bearing images that point to God if we are living in darkness and sin? And this very question is, is why I'm convinced that being made in the image of God is not simply a passive trait that we are born with, but it's also a duty that is given to mankind. It's one and the same. Uh, it it kind of goes back to this discussion that a lot of people have of, are you saved by works or are you saved by faith? And the answer to that, as far as I can tell, is you do works because you're saved. And if you don't do works, then you're not saved. That may seem confusing, but we we see this, what seems to be a tension when you read Paul in Romans, who says you are saved by faith alone. You are not saved by works. He's speaking to a mostly Jewish crowd in this instance, and he's saying, hey, you're not saved by the works that you do. You're saved by faith. But then you have James in the book of James in his letter that'll say, hey, uh, just having no faith isn't enough. You're, you're saved also by works. And it's two sides of the same coin in one sense, because if you are saved, you're going to do works. But if you don't do works, then it means that you're not saved. So, yes, you have to do works to be saved because if you don't do the good works, then you're not really renewed by the works of Christ. So it's two sides of the same coin, and I believe that, that same type of I believe that, that same type of paradigm can be applied to what it means to be the image of God. Is that being an image of God is not just a passive trait that allows us to live our lives lazily, but it is a trait that if we truly understand that we are made in God's image, we will work to do what we can to properly represent the one that we image. So remember earlier how we pointed out that the Hebrew grammar in Genesis 1 uh, infers that we are made in God's image in order that we will rule over creation. But being God's image is a responsibility that we must constantly work to honor and uphold. And this should drastically change how we view our responsibility to living wholly for Christ, because we are literally His representation to the rest of humanity. It's easy for people to believe that God is love, mercy, and justice when His people exhibit those same characteristics. But it's also easy for people to believe that God is tainted And evil and immoral when his people act immoral and tainted and they act in their own self-interests. I mean, have you ever wondered why it's said that we are made in the image of God instead of being made as his image? I mean, it say it may seem like we're parsing words, but this distinction is important. Being made in the image is a high honor. But you are simply a limited glimpse into a higher authority. But being the image means that you are that higher authority. And funny enough, this very distinction is made by Paul regarding Jesus. I was doing a a Bible study with my friend last week and we were reading the intro to Colossians. Um, And I, I came across this and I was in preparation for going over this episode here, and I thought, wow, this distinction is very important and very profound. Colossians 1, verse 15, Paul says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, this is important, because Jesus is not said to be made in the image of god when i first read this i thought oh yeah that seems to be a callback to genesis 1 right that's a callback to genesis 127 we're made in the image of god jesus is made in the image and then i had to stop myself and say wait no 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 paul is making a callback to genesis 127 but he's making a very important distinction because as we read this paul's readers should look at this and say, yeah, this is a callback. Humans are made in the image of God. I'm made in the image of God. But Jesus, he says, is the image of God. Jesus is the physical embodiment of what otherwise is the invisible God. And this is very, very, very important to distinguish because as humans, being made in the image of God. We are merely limited vessels that point to the full reality of God. We can only give a small, 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 small glimpse of God and whatever it means to be made in His image. But Jesus, on the other hand, Jesus is the full picture. Jesus is not the limited vessel. He is the full reality of God in every way. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the call for God's people to be a light to the nations, something that people that were made in the image of God ultimately could not do on their own. So it took the image of God, God himself, to come and help fulfill the call for there to be a light to the nations. And we hear about this in John chapter 1. And this this distinction between being made in the image and being the image, here's here's an analogy that helped me kind of understand this. So kind of another analogy back to me and my daughters, right? My daughters, you could say, are made in my image. They're made in the image of me and my wife. Uh, they have little characteristics and quirks that we can point to and say, uh, yep, that points back. To my wife, eye, yep, that points back to me. Facial features, mannerisms, their personalities, yep, that points to her, that points to me. They're made in the image of us where when other people look at them, they can look back and, and have some sort of representation of their creators, me and my wife. But that is not to say that they are my image. The only person that can be the image of me is myself. The only person that can fully, one-to-one, 100%, give a accurate, full reality picture of me, of my image, is myself. And that's the same way we are to understand Jesus, is that Jesus is the image of God. He is God. But as humans, we only, to some degree, to some percentage, reflect back to the higher authority of God himself. So if anybody wants to know what God is like, they no longer have to look at an imperfect humanity to put together a portrait of God. They can look at Jesus and see God in the flesh. And this should relieve us to one sense, but not relieve us in our duty. The way that it relieves us in one sense is that Before Jesus, since we were God's image, we were a representation of Yahweh, of God. So when the surrounding peoples and the surrounding nations, all those who did not believe, to one sense, if we were not fulfilling our duty to be a light, then they would look upon mankind. They would look and say, oh, they are representing their God, Yahweh. And if they're acting in a poor way, then they're representing God pretty poorly. But if they act in a holy way, then they represent God in a holy manner. But the problem is, is that humanity kind of stinks at being holy. <laughs> we, we've kind of never done good at it. Nobody ever. So this is why Jesus coming onto the scene makes things so great is that although we are still made in the image of God in some sort of physical or mental or spiritual sense, we still have a duty. To be God's imagers and God's representatives to creation, but Jesus perfectly fulfilled that duty as well. So even when we fail, which we will, we can point to Jesus and say, hey, look, don't, don't look at me. I am not representing God like I should be. The way I am acting is not what my God approves of. That is not what he's like. But go look at Jesus. That is what my God is, because that is God. That is my God. And so in one sense, this idea of a duty to act in a holy way to properly represent God is one aspect of what it means to be made in the image of God. And that's why the whole New Testament calls for us to strive as hard as possible to be like Christ. Because Christ perfectly fulfills what humans were originally called to be. In Genesis 1. So I hope that you can see that being made in the image of God is more than just a passive, physical, or mental, or conscience based characteristic. It's also a call to action, it's a call to properly represent the God of the universe to his creation and to do everything you can to live up to his image which is Jesus Christ. I'll see y'all next week.